Welcome to the Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Miller, your host. We are a group of thought leaders and industry experts talking all about the future of food and things happening in the food industry. Our sponsor is Farm to Plate, the brainchild of Paramount Software Solutions. Farm to Plate is a software company committed to creating the food ecosystem of the future today. Our guest today, he has such a seasoned history in the industry, and I'm looking forward to getting some unique perspectives. We have Julian LeBlanc. He is the president and co-founder of Blueprint North America. Welcome to the podcast, Julian. Thanks, Pam. Thrilled to be here, I must say. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And I want to say you're a little bit different than some of our guests because you're more of a consultancy with Blueprint. I would love for you to give our audience a little bit of context of who you are and what you're doing with Blueprint and, and how you got there. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So so the origin story is always interesting. I, I, I'm always fascinated with others' origin stories. So I'll take a few seconds to share my Blueprint story. How the story started with Blueprint is my last role at McCain Foods. So I spent 25 years in the food business, you know, different roles, sales, marketing. But to this day, I still can't believe I got paid to do this. I absolutely loved it, Pam. So for four years, I was the global director of training and development for McCain Foods for sales and marketing. And as you can appreciate, McCain Foods, 100 plus countries, you know, 30 different languages. So really got to travel the world and experience the food business, uh, you know, whether it was opening up in, in, in China or Africa at the time to, uh, to Chicago, Canada. And what was really neat is my first year at McCain Foods, uh, we wanted to find training providers to help us with selling, negotiating, uh, you know, category management. And so I was really the guinea pig and experienced all the various offerings. And let me tell you, there's a lot of really good training out there. Now, here's an insight that, that I thought was interesting. As I went through all the negotiation programs, for instance, the material looked very similar from, from firm to firm. The magic was really in the credibility of the person bringing it to life. And this is a compliment that I'm giving to all the firms out there. Every experience, I'd come back to my boss and say, that was amazing. We got to partner with them. And yes, I'm an eternal optimist, but it really was. And then at one point, I experienced this firm out of Scotland, of all places. Um, and the founder's name was uh, Ronald McDonald. So I joked, my, my business partner, Ronnie's quite funny. He always says, life was good until I found out there was a cloud on the other side of the pond. And I really cannot make this up. Our first engagement at McCain Foods was working on the McDonald's business because it was our big account. So here's Ronnie with his business card. But what we loved about Ronnie's firm is Ronnie has spent half his career on the buying side of the desk in the food business and the other half on the selling. So we found the experiences, the examples, the case studies so relevant to our business so for four years, we had landed on Blueprint as our global training provider, got to know, as you can imagine, right, you're up at three in the morning because you can't sleep in Tokyo because of the time difference. You get to really know people. And I fell in love with the team at Blueprint, the methodology, so much so that in 2012, you know, I, I bought the rights, if you want, with Ronnie to open in North America. Uh, he already had a lot of global clients. And uh, I've never looked back. And really, in a nutshell, what we do at Blueprint is I joke that we're in the business confidence game. We help people with their personal business confidence, which I'm sure we'll talk about has been challenged quite a bit, obviously, in this moment in time. We help people with their strategic confidence, 
They're getting to yes confidence, whether it's selling or negotiating. And then finally, pulling it all together around their leadership confidence. Can you get others, you know, rallied around uh, that insight and, and move it forward? So I'm in the confidence business and um, and I absolutely love it. As I joke with my wife, I found a hobby that pays. So so that's that's what I do. <laughs> Your wife is probably really happy about that. You are not far off base on the confidence part, though. I that mindset piece of how people work, no matter what industry you're in is so important. And you can look at two different people, maybe two different companies, especially within the food space. Maybe one restaurant is successful and one is not. And sometimes it might even just come down to the the confidence of that owner to, to step out and make some bold decisions or, or go in the right direction. That's amazing. That's amazing insight into some differences that you find. And you, you've you seen a lot of uh, people across the spectrum of companies that you've worked with. I have to say a little shout out to McCain because we did interview them on Future Foodcast here. Oh, very good. For our very listeners good. that might want to look that up, Carolyn Morissette was a great guest and had a lot of wonderful insight. And yeah, those fries are awesome. No matter, no matter They're awesome. And I joke and, and you know, Maybe just a quick word of the story with McCain. Yeah. So I'm from New Brunswick, from Atlantic Canada, from my American friends. So if you think of Maine, uh, the province that would border Maine, and great place to visit in the summer. There's my shameless plug for my, my hometown province. But uh, McCain is from Florenceville, New Brunswick, a little town. And so started with them as a sales rep and to this day still a client. So I don't, I, I cannot shake them off in a good way. I've got the McCain tattoo on my left butt cheek there. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's probably too much information. It is, but it's true. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we get back to the food business? Because you have you have a very good perspective on what's happening out there. So what is happening out there? What, what are the challenges? What's the situation right now that you can give us some insight on? Yeah, so look, uh, being very fortunate to spend a lot of time in a lot of the industry conferences as well as, as a facilitator and moderator. And one of the things that I'll share throughout our conversation here, Pam, is, you know, what I'm very proud of is we get a good peek under the tent from farm to fork. So we literally work from the growers to the manufacturers to the brokers representing the manufacturers to the distributors and ultimately to the operators that are, you know, uh, facing that moment of truth, if you want, with, with the end users. And what I can say is, speaking of confidence, there's no doubt that, that leaders' confidence in the food business have been rocked over the last few years. Supply chain is, we're not out of the woods, as, as you can well appreciate. We're still trying to navigate through that. On the flip side, what I'm really excited about where the industry is going is what took place in the last few years is I think there was more transparency than ever in, in the food service business. And what we know is the solution is in the room if you're prepared to have that conversation and share data and, and, and be transparent. And I can tell you that as I've you know worked with the various components of the value chain, the ones that were just very forthcoming... Uh, open lines of communication, they don't want that to stop. So it was almost like, you know, in many ways, as much as it was tragic, what took place over the last few years, it potentially, if we look for the learnings, could set up the industry really well for the next 10 years, partnering differently, innovating differently, sharing data, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to serve the same person at the end of the, of the value chain. So if I look at the conferences and the themes that I'm seeing over the next, let's call it a couple of months, it's all about partnership. 
It's all about hitting refresh together, right? What did we learn? Let's make sure we don't let those learnings go away. And uh, I think, look, there's inflation, there's, you know, all these, the noise that's out there, but we're going to go back to that innovative mindset that I think most people got into the food business because it was such a, a, a collaborative uh, industry. And, and, you know, over time, Kind of lost our way a bit. The pandemic challenged us, but I'm feeling very bullish at what's what's going to take place here in the next few years. I, I can feel the energy. I'm really seeing it shift. So that's really good to hear. You know, yeah. two words that you use there strike me as uh, consumers are demanding too, and it had to do with the transparency and the collaboration with the challenges with supply chain. I don't know if you saw a lot more collaboration trying to identify alternative you know, alternative sources. And everybody was kind of working together to try to figure out how to make that happen. But consumers also want that transparency piece. They want to know where things have come from, how the people on the the providing end, the supplying end, our farmers, growers, how they're being treated, what's happening with them all the way along and making sure uh, what's going on with their food and, and what the companies that are providing that are doing. Uh, to help the whole industry move up. That's an interesting perspective that you brought to the fore. Yeah, and I think here's the good news is, you know, it's a perfect marriage of mindset and then leaning into future tools like, uh, let's call it QR codes, let's call it uh, blockchain. How do we we marry uh, technology with having a growth mindset? I couldn't resist. I'm I'm obsessed with the difference with having a growth and fixed mindset. And I can tell you that I absolutely can feel the energy and and listen to the conversations that are taking place at industry conferences. The ones that are choosing to go in with a growth mindset and saying, how do we solve these challenges together, I think are going to be rewarded, you know, tenfold in the next 10 years. I I really believe that more than ever. Well, that's really good to hear. And those of you who are listening who might be in the industry, actually take heed to what Julian's saying, because I think he's, he's got his thumb on the pulse of what's happening out there in the industry. So that's a really great, because we're looking at a lot of, you know, the pandemic caused us to do things a lot differently. There's, there's a lot of disruption that has happened and is still happening. And I don't know if you could speak to some of what you're seeing out there. I mean, I know there's disruption in a lot of industries, but particularly in the food space. Well, look, I think the biggest challenge, you know, I always, if you ask someone, why do you love the food business? They're going to say people. What's the challenge in the food business right now? They're going to say people. And as much as there's, you know, the robots are coming and automation is starting to play a bigger role in distribution or even, you know, you're, I'm sure you're seeing in the news, the restaurants that opens with no servers. And I mean, you know, but at the end of the day, what I do believe, unless we, you know, unless humans decide that we're okay with a pill to replace food and replace the the, the camaraderie of, of how the American fabric was built and, and which is around a table and sharing food, it's all about people. You know, if I look at conversation, I'll give you a perfect example that that that's a fascinating thing to watch unfold as, as a facilitator, as, as, as a consultant, is one of my favorite exercises to do at a conference especially when you have operators, distributors, and manufacturers in the room, is to say, okay, we're going to mix up, you know, five or six liters at a table. And here's the rules. You cannot talk price and product for multiple reasons. What are the conversations that we should be having as an industry? 
And it's quite interesting because for the first five minutes, everybody's looking at each other. Well, and once that unlocks, Pam, it's unbelievable because we're all facing the same thing, right? Traceability, sustainability, uh, humans, the role of automation, expectations now from the consumers of, I want everything, you know, uh, you're going to meet me where I want to be met ultimately because we we basically through the through this moment in time we got really creative in terms of how we were going to get margaritas to people when they're on a you know uh, a three week shutdown or whatever and so i think you know if i were to bucket it i'm going to call it the people challenge not not and people means okay what's the role of technology i believe that technology is just a yes end yeah. it's not going to replace humans the example is is what we're very fortunate at blueprint pam is 60% of our clients are in the food business. We All my team, we come from food, but replace the French fry with software and software with banking. It's the same problem. So obviously we're very well trained in this industry and it lends itself well. So, so spending a lot of time in you know banking, accounting, and I was with a senior VP the other day and I love what he reminded us because everybody was like, what are we going to do for these humans? They're not showing up at work. They're not as motivated, X, Y, Z. And what he reminded us is he said, look, what I know is technology is not going to replace the human. And he said, let's look at the ATM machine. When the ATM machine came out, it was supposed to replace humans. We don't need humans because if you think of a banker, you would go and they would give you dollar bills. The, sh the stat he shared with me in Canada, uh, which 100% applies to the US, is he says, you know what's funny? Banking hours are the longest they've ever been in the history of banking. We've got more physical locations we've ever had because what happened is you go to a bank to get a service, to get advice. Guess what? Isn't that what bankers were trained to do when they went to school? They didn't want to just give you money. So ultimately, it replaced that mundane task that bankers after a while, you know, doing the money thing all day to let me sell you insurance. Let me help you get a credit line. Let me help you with your small business needs. So I always remind ourselves, for those of us in the food business that think the technology, no, if we're struggling getting truck drivers, yes, we might use autonomous trucks and these truck drivers might still sit in the truck, but now they can be salespeople to help consult the operators on, you know, menu planning, for instance, Pam. So right, right on the mark, Julian, you know, we've interviewed some of those automation companies that are automating pieces of in the food business specifically. And what I've seen is exactly what you said. They're just taking that transactional, repetitive yes. function that a human doesn't have to do and letting the automation take care of that, similar to the ATM example you used. And then that frees up the humans. Like think about a manager in a fast food restaurant, for example, instead of trying to figure out if we need to cook more fries because of what orders are anticipated, you know, AI can be predicting based on weather events happening, what the normal traffic is that time of day, that time of year, et cetera, what kind of fries we might need to have in the ready uh, and the manager gets to manage, they get to work with the people, they get to be customer facing, they get to do the things that only the people can do. And that's a that's a great point to take the fear out of the automation piece. And it's really empowering. And it is going to help in part solve that people issue or the shortage of workers, so to speak, we're, we're going to be able to, to leverage the workers' abilities in a different way. And I, I think that's a great way to frame it. 
there's a, you know, this notion of, of spending more time managing the humans and, and, and creating that, you know, psychological safety so that everybody can be the best version of themselves when they're working in your restaurant. There's a statistic, I don't know if you're familiar with it, that comes from EMIP. Uh, it was a book that was written by, uh, I believe was the author, Michael Gerber. It's like, call it 25 years old. It's, it's a fantastic book. Well, look, we're all entrepreneurs. Whether you work for someone else or you work for yourself, the people that succeed think like entrepreneurs. But I'm just going to share the stat because it might build a, a, an interesting bridge here in, in our conversation is the stat, and I'm sure it's it's held pretty steady, is that they looked at companies over the last, call it 25 years, and there's about a million businesses that incorporate every year in North America. Now, that includes the tax Delaware Corp. And as you can imagine, 10% of that is in Canada, 90% in the US. Population plays out that way as well. What they wanted to know, and I thought it was interesting, is how many of these million businesses make it to year 10? What is the percentage? And look, I knew it was going to be low. I wasn't prepared for, drum roll, 4%. Oh, Only uh, 4%. I wouldn't have expected it to be that low either. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. astonishing. Now, astonishing. It is. Now, the fun part of the statistic is why do 96% of businesses fail? So- in the book, he talks about, you know, what they learn. And of course, and by the way, money was not the number one reason. Entrepreneurs are greedy enough to keep going, even if there's no money there, right? Beg, borrow, steal, do whatever you need to do, as long as, you know, you're in it for the right reasons. The number one reason, and I think about this quite a bit, actually, it's one of those, those insights I think about is people spend too much time working in the business versus on the business. And if you think of great operators, Typically, they take time to work on the business, to understand the competitive landscape, to understand menu planning, to understand food costs, to understand what technology they're going to bring in so they can spend more time with their humans and maybe train them so they can deliver an unparalleled customer experience, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. To So on versus in. And, and, and if I think about this, People challenge is definitely the challenge we're all facing in the food business. In every other industry, pretty much the same. And secondly, we've been so focused on working in the business the last two years because it was survival. Yeah. That how do we go back to working on the business and creating that capacity? And that's the opportunity slash challenge, I would say. Yeah, getting to getting to scale a bit, that's a whole different facet of it. I hate to quote another book. I, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm reading right now a book called The Road Less Stupid. Oh, and interesting. Okay. It's all about thinking time, right? which is addressing exactly what you're talking about. That right. entrepreneur needs to take time out of working in the business to actually think on the business. Do we have the right processes in place? How can we maximize our resources? You know, what are what are we doing moving forward? How are we going to scale? What what are our goals for scaling? Just letting your brain think. And it's really, and the book is set up great because it's in little snippets that, right, right. you know, us, <laughs> we want to read a chapter in, you know, 15 minutes and then be able to ruminate on that. So it, it's an interesting topic of, of the book, but it addresses exactly what you're talking about. about what I love, what I love with that title is if you think about it, one of the things that attracts most people to the food business, whether you're on the operational side and you know, you're know you running a warehouse, whether you're the operator, whether you're the manufacturer, the sales rep, is you are managing your own little business. You know, The sales rep working for manufacturer has a territory, has X amount of accounts. Do they have enough time to think 
about their business. And uh, I love it. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up the book. I'm always looking for the next recommendation. Pat, so thank Good. You. Well, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of the, some of what you've seen out there. I mean, you, you've worked here in North America, but I know you've also worked internationally and, and you have some great examples of companies that are doing good jobs and, and looking at some of these uh, future proofing ideas and, and how do we do better? Uh, would you like to share any of yeah. those? Absolutely. Look, I'll I'll start with the first two that actually these would be North American examples, but are very powerful. And obviously your listeners might have heard of it or they might have even bought a product from, let's call it a ghost kitchen, but they might not know the the story behind it. And for me, what I'm loving is the power of of thinking differently. And and again, that's what the last few years have, have forced all of us to do. So ghost kitchens. If you think of being a restaurant owner, you have an asset. You're not utilizing that asset 100% of the time. So ideally, how do you find a way to keep you know, that kitchen at 100% capacity in the afternoon, maybe in the evenings? Well, ghost kitchens would be an absolutely perfect example. And at one of the last conferences I was at, International Food Distributor Association, there's a plug for IFTA, great conference, brought together all kinds of leaders. And we had uh, companies come and talk to us where what they do is they've partnered with uh, influencers. So picture Mr. Beast. So Mr. Beast, right? YouTube influencer. Well, you have the Mr. Beast burger. So imagine you and I have that restaurant in Atlanta, Georgia. We've got capacity. We partner with Mr. Beast. So they send us the packaging. We get the specs on the burger. All we need to do is produce the burger because everything else is done on the back end. They have their own website. The order comes in. Obviously, we give them a percentage. We keep a percentage. You talk about thinking differently. A, you're tapping into a market you didn't have before. B, it can help you stabilize hours for your staff so you can attract the best people. C, you are now sweating that asset of utilization. So power of, of, of ghost kitchen slash influencers. Yeah, right? win, win, win for sure. Yeah. So, so that would be one great example. I mean, look, one of the things that was definitely starting before the pandemic, and, and we see this more in Europe. I always say, and, and Pam, I'm sure you've seen this as well in, in your travels, is Europe tends to be three to five year ahead a lot of times in trends, whether it's fashion trends, whether it's food trends. And as my Europeans with friends would say, by necessity, like for instance, if they lean into, I don't know, electric vehicles, it's because they have less land, it's more condensed, there's challenges, so you get a bit more creative, right? If if you look at um, protein and, and what's taking place with some of the trends around alternative proteins, in Europe. And I just read something last week that, you know, celebrities are now getting in the mix, like Leo DiCaprio, Leonardo, uh, Mr. Titanic, right, has invested in two alternative uh, protein companies. And, you know, part of it is around, you know, a cell base as well. So so I'm not a food scientist, but it's how do you still so so if I look at cell base, you get the same taste as, as you would from meat with obviously a reduced carbon footprint, right? So that type of thinking, I think now that, you know, we're, we're trying to work our way out of this moment in time, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of it. Uh, packaging. So it's amazing how packaging is, is drastically changing to the point, and you mentioned this around transparency, to even let the end user know of what are the materials that are going in the packaging, right? Yeah. Seeing that push. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the, the one push that we're really seeing, and it's funny because we had heard about it, it's always probably been more prevalent in Europe because, you know, the first time I bought or, or brought, I should say, a bunch of my European colleagues to the cheesecake, cheesecake factory in Chicago, they couldn't believe it. If, if you would have seen, right, when they opened the menu to the point that they said, do you think we can go visit the kitchen? Because we can't phantom how this is done. And the food quality was good. They said, how do you do that? Now, what was interesting at the time, though, is some of the observations that came as we we're having dinner and wine was, is this sustainable, th this model, in terms of, of quantity and so many items? And I must say, last time I was in Austin, Texas, and, and, and all of you probably experienced this, I was shocked at some of the menus where they now have 10 items on it. Look, we do fish and chips. We do that really well. We have three beers. That's the beer. And it creates efficiency. Quality goes up. So that's an example where I think Europe has always embraced less is more in terms of portion size and in terms of doing a few things really, really well. I'm starting to see, probably by necessity, but but maybe also uh, you know lifestyle choices, I think our menus are going to get smaller in terms of what we offer and, and going deeper with a few offerings. And I'm seeing it, you know, in Nashville and Austin and even in Vegas and some of the high end uh, restaurants, which is less, less, less options, but let's call it dialing up more on the quality side of things. Yeah. And there might be a lot of reasons for that, but I, I agree. I, as a consumer saw that too. And I thought it was because of the pandemic and possibly supply chain issues and just maximizing the staff that was available. I, I saw restaurants scale their menu to those most popular items, the things that they're known better for, and maybe the outliers that aren't ordered as much. Those didn't make the last cut <laughs> on the on the current menu, but there are, you've brought to, to the front here some other reasons that people might be moving in that direction. I mean, I think evaluate, there's a whole rethinking, which is what you're talking about. Like, how are we moving forward? Like, are, you know, are the processes that we've always done, are those the right ones? How is automation going to play into that? What's the future look like? I, I know there's been um, disruption and you, you work a lot in the food space and that's really where the history of your team is. But you are also in other industries. Are there other things going on in those industries that that can be helpful or should be looked at by the food industry? Well, look, I think there's a model that I love and, and maybe I can share a couple of examples of how that model is brought to life. And, and it, it's called the 70-20-10 model in terms of how you look at your business. So, so for instance, Pam, you and I start a business tomorrow and we say, okay, imagine if 70% of our energy, time and efforts went towards our core business. So, so this is our core. And of course, we're constantly going to be in continuous improvement, try to find these 1% incremental gains. 20% of our energy efforts and resources should go towards calculated risk. We know we should do it. Let's do it. And 10% of our energy effort, you know, money resources towards Hail Marys. Almost like an angel investor, we're going to try 10 different things. But if one of those lands, guess what? We've just transformed our business. And I think the example we're seeing play out live that's just played out in the last few months is Microsoft. So if you think of Microsoft, well, first of all, uh, Nadella. So imagine being that CEO. So you've been given the keys after following Balmer that, you know, Wall Street loved, and then Bill Gates that, you know, was, was the visionary and, and, you know, Paul Allen and so forth. Well, he wrote a book and I love what he called it. He called it Hit Refresh because what he said 
I'm a Mac user, so I'm assuming this still applies to non-Mac products. When you go Control-Alt-Delete, you get a blank piece of paper, but you don't lose your history. I think if ever there's an opportunity to hit refresh, it's now, right? And you look at Microsoft with this chat GPT, I'm sure some of you have been playing around with this. It's the first time ever that Google fears that they have a competitor, right? So Microsoft is placing big bets. When Microsoft bought LinkedIn, people said that's insane. I think that was a 20% calculated risk. Look at the return on investment they're getting on that thing now. Microsoft has been crushing it the last few years because what got them there is not going to get them there, right? What got us here won't get you there. Yes. And so I think Microsoft will be a perfect example. We definitely don't want to become Blockbuster, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you've all heard all those stories. It's coming out even more because there's been a few documentaries on it. They could have bought Netflix, what is it, six different times over the course of their history, right? The, the stat that I heard the other day that I love was could have bought Netflix for nothing. It was documented in their board meetings that streaming service is where it was going. The number one reason or one of the reasons, I'm sure it's, it's a bit of a folklore story, that they couldn't get out of their own way. And this is quite funny. 70% of Blockbuster's profits came from late fees. I believe that. Some, so of, us, some of us still have a Blockbuster CD somewhere in our Absolutely. House. Not mentioning um, any names, but... Absolutely. And by the way, I'm sure you saw there's a great uh, documentary on Netflix. They just closed the last one in Portland, Oregon, just recently. It's like vintage. But why am I sharing the Blockbuster story is Microsoft chose to say, yes, this was our model, 70%. Let's keep tweaking it. But we got to place these 20 and 10% bets. Blockbuster did not. Not a great story, right? Not a great story because they were bricks and mortar and they depended on late fees, even though they knew that as we like to say in Canada, skate where the puck is going, not where the puck is. It's that famous Wayne Gretzky uh, quote. So let's bring it back to the food business. If we're not spending 20% of our time on calculated risks with our teams and 10% on Hail Marys, we're not future-proofing our businesses. Right. We're just taking part of the core. Point well taken, because I think a lot of people in the food business over the recent history have done that, you know, I'm going to hold on to what I have moved instead of doing the, you know, that's the 70 part and being a little bit defensive about that. But then you're talking about putting it out there, the 20 and the 10, maybe your ghost kitchen idea of let's step out and see what else you know, what else, what other thoughts do we have? And that's where it comes like, instead of working in your business, working on your business, thinking about what's our business look like and how are we going to move forward? What? Well said, Pam. Well said. And look, I can tell you at conferences when I've showed this model, like for instance, at PepsiCo, I, I worked at PepsiCo for a few years, Indra Nui, famous CEO, retired a, a, a few years ago, she would tell you, she was big on the 70-20-10, so all her leaders had to present their year that way. And she would say in her 12 years, I believe she was CEO or 10 plus, her 10 and 20 outperformed the 70 because things like social media came to fruition, influencer marketing, you know, Doritos, name your own flavor. And, and what they did really well is they were always testing, right? They almost acted like a technology company that happened to sell a bag of chips. So it, it's rewiring what business are we really in? And that's what I keep challenging my clients and, and our partners. And when we go to conferences is, look, yes, we're in the food business, 
But what business are you really in? Because if you can identify that, then you're going to get more creative, smarter, and you're going to look at your partnerships a bit differently. You know, imagine, as you can tell, I get very passionate with this model. Imagine if you were a distributor and you had three meetings a year with your manufacturer partner. One of them was the 70% meeting. Let's make sure that our programs are set for the year. One is around 20%. What could we do together? And one is around 10%. Are you telling me that with the intelligence in this community, that we would not all be future-proofing our businesses if we did that. And I know that some companies are doing it, and I know that others might just need a reminder, because I know I needed this reminder, because it's normal to get back in the 70%, right? So, yeah. Well, and how would, for, for our listeners, Julian, what would you suggest? What, what questions do you ask? Like, how do you figure out what you're going to be doing in your 20% and your 10%. What would those meetings look like? How would it Well, that, that's, yeah. So fantastic. So I love the word question. There, there's a, there, Peter Drucker had a great quote, the famous management guru, uh, late management guru. He said, there's nothing worse than having the right answer to the wrong question, <laughs> right? Because then all your energy, efforts, and resources go in the wrong area. So the questions absolutely are the answers. And we need to make sure that we're asking ourselves the right question for each bucket. Look, the 70% is what can we do to find 1% incremental gains? So it's, it's you know, minor tweaks, right? Embracing that mindset. I think the 20% is, could be a question like this. If we were to start from scratch today, we were both a startup, what would we do differently, right? What would we do differently? I, I think Absolutely, there's a lot of things that we're, we've become prisoners of reference points and we're stuck in our business models, right? Uh, another great question in 20% would be this. I believe that the data that exists in our business is so rich, yet we're not mining it properly because we're protecting our information. Fear that that's our value prop, that's our, our, our secret sauce. In the 20%, if we find partners, so imagine whether you're operator and distributor, distributor and manufacturer, grow, let's just share our data. I guarantee you that that data will lead to an insight that will lead to strategy that will lead to some wins. So question could be, what data could we be exchanging to help us de-risk the 20%? So it's not even a risk anymore, right? My favorite question with the 10%, and this is probably because I get a peek on the 10 in all these different industries. I love to play this game and it always leads to great conversations. I mentioned the, the Google, Microsoft, some of the Silicon Valley think tanks or Seattle think tanks. If Google was running her business, what would they do, right? If someone that wasn't in the food business was given the keys to this business, what would they do? Because our greatest strength a lot of times is the passion and the experience we have for the industry. Our greatest weakness is we're in that tunnel. Exactly. Right? Well, and that's where as an entrepreneur and you're you're in your tunnel, that's when it's good to bring in somebody like Blueprint to have that outside view and look at your business and say, yeah, take the blinders off a little bit and help you see bigger and and moving into the future and how you can ask the right questions because you've worked with a lot of companies and a lot of food businesses to know what questions to ask and to help them move through that. So that's a really good. Well, Pam, just, you just triggered another idea in it. Okay. And uh, we have like four hours, right? Is that what we've got? Oh, we do not have four hours. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things, so so my, my day job is Blueprint, but I'm also a serial entrepreneur because I, I'm, I'm very passionate about business and trying to solve problems. And look, I've got 10 stories, as my wife would say, we'll never see the money on that one, right? Like, so so obviously, we sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. I, I never fail, but let's just call it a lot of stuff in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. But there is one big success story that I'm part of. I'm co-founder of a company called Hearing Aid Rental. So we rent hearing aids. And the reason I'm going to share the story is replace the hearing aid with food distribution. And it might trigger ideas for all of you here uh, listening to this conversation. So, so let me share the story. So there's a tragic stat in hearing health. Only 25% of people that have a hearing loss choose to wear hearing aids. Only 25. Now, part of it is you wear glasses for yourself. You wear hearing aids for others because the people around you will adjust until they won't. And they'll say, mom, dad, you know, son, like we're going to get you in front of an audiologist. Now, my best friend is an audiologist and he's a very successful entrepreneur. And he said, over my dead body, am I going to stay in an industry where I accept that 75% of people are not going to choose the solution when I know that I can help them go back to socialization to, you know, go back to the activities they've missed out on. So what we did is we looked at the data. And the data is very clear if you work with manufacturer partners is the number one reason why people don't wear hearing aids, according to the research, is price. And number two is stigma. Mm. Now, I think number two is actually number one from what I've experienced in the last 10 years, but not everybody admits that. So the question we ask ourselves, and I think this is a question that applies directly if I put my food hat back on, how could we make it easier for people to wear hearing aids? Very simple question. And what we landed on is we looked at other industries and we said, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Most people rent or lease their iPhones through their phone providers. It's a depreciating asset. All you care about is what you're getting because you're going to replace it probably in two, three tech or chip technologies. So what's happened is, we started renting hearing aids in the poorest province in Canada. So picture the poorest state in the US, you know, where we thought this would be a great solution for people that can't afford it. And how it works, if you're curious, it's a three-year contract. They're brand new hearing aids. You bring them back. We refurbish them. We send them to third world countries like Tom. So what a great full circle, right? Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's happened in New Brunswick. It's now the highest average sales price in Canada, because once people rent for $20 more, mom or dad or son, you need the best solution. And guess what? Closing ratios through the roof. Uh, People enjoy their hearings. They can't wait to get a brand new pair. They come to us to renew instead of dragging these things five, six, seven years. Right. So all we did is we said, it comes back to asking the right question. What could we do to make it easier we came up with a solution. We're now on our third cycle of renewals. It's, it's, it's fantastic. We've partnered with the biggest manufacturer hearing aids in the world. So it's going to be coming to the US eventually uh, now that it's beta tested. But again, I'm not an audiologist. It's asking the right question. So imagine in our boardrooms in the food business, you have the expertise. Are we asking the right questions and are we spending enough time in the 20 and the 10? And are we looking at what's Microsoft doing? Because if we can pull it all together, that's the power of we versus me, if you want, right? And then you just right. you just drive forward, right? So. Well, and when you talked about collaboration before, I mean, we were really talking about collaboration in the food business, but I'm also hearing 
not necessarily collaboration doing business together, but the collaboration of ideas yes. and instigating yes. movement and, yes. and, and knowing how to ask those right questions. And I think that's a really great message to yes. leave our audience too. I hope all of you are listening out there and taking some notes because Julian's dropping some just critical business pieces here if you need to implement them in your business. So I'm very excited about that. Julian, since we don't have four hours, we have talked about a lot of different things. I mean, more than I ever thought we would on our interview. And I'm I'm so excited about that. But what is there anything else you would like to leave our audience with before we go from this interview today? What else do you have up your sleeve that you'd like to share? Yeah, look, I think Here's the good news. People are going to eat. That, that's not going to change. So, so we work in a phenomenal industry. So let's start there, right? Like, let's go back to why we got into this. You probably have passion for it. It is 100% normal that we all had to go in survival mode. We, we basically, I'm going to use a football analogy. And I'm very careful with sports analogies. I realize not everybody watches sports. I, I love my sports. Is we played prevent defense. And for those of you that watch football, it is very painful when you've built up a lead and then you just watch your team allow the other team to just kind of keep marching down because you'll allow some gains trying to just protect the touchdown. Obviously, I'm not going to give you a football lesson. I'm sure all of you know more about football than I do. But how do we go back on offense? And the way to go back on offense is my belief is if you're a manufacturer, you better have a roadshow, the innovation tour coming soon, right? We can't wait to work with our partners to innovate together. If you're a distributor, you probably should be asking every single of your top manufacturers to say, hey, could we spend an hour and a half in, a, in, in the kitchen with you and experiment again with food, right? So I think we just got to go, all of us, and, and you're probably already starting to make your way because I am seeing it and I'm feeling that energy. But let's go back on offense. I think that's where the the, the industry has always been really good is, is just always thinking, you know, three, five years down the road. And, um, and yes, that 70% still needs to be taken care of because we're not out of the woods with the supply chain. So, so that would be my last advice is, is coming back to 70-2010, offense versus prevent defense. And um we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's look outside our industry and let's go to town and learn from other best practices. Like the example I mentioned with uh, with uh, trying to change uh, the hearing health uh, through uh, renting versus having to buy. Right? Great insight, Julian. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And uh, we just really appreciate you bringing your wisdom and experience and expertise to our listening audience at Future Foodcast. Thank you so much. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure, Pam. And, and look, I, I can't wait to learn from your audience as well. So so please, I, I, I'm always up for a great conversation. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I've got my little vlog called the Confidence Vlog. So we can engage there and, and let's do this together because no one needs to do this on their own. And we're all in it for, for the same reason, is how do we continue to just uh, drive this industry forward? So thanks, Pam. Yes, check the uh, notes for this episode for the information on how to connect with Julian. We also want to thank our sponsor, Farm to Plate, allowing better food supply management. You can check out more information at farmtoplate.io. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. 
Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 